is by going down into the abyss that we recover the treasures of life. Where you stumble, there lies your treasure. Welcome to the Two Roads Travel podcast. Two sisters, two journeys, one purpose. Changing perceptions and judgments around alcohol misuse. The impact on the drinker, family and society as a whole. Too many struggle alone, so please remember us when you chat to someone that may need help. Remember, we also run a closed Facebook group for Daughters of Alcoholics, so for those that want some more individual support, please go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Daughters of Alcoholics. In episode 21, which is released on the 7th of June, we will be sharing our episode about the impact of living with a parent's drinking on your mental health. Susanna Butcher joins us to share her experiences and talks about EMDR and how this fairly new technique has changed her life. Remember to pop it in your calendar, it's not one you're going to want to miss. Welcome to episode 20 of the Two Roads Travelled podcast. Today Joe and Paula will be talking about how siblings from a family with a heavy drinker can have very different perceptions and memories of things that happened when they were young. Individuals always recall different memories of a shared experience. These can give rise in turn to very different coping strategies. In this episode, Paula and Joe will be chatting to Nicole Johnston. She shares her story about living with a father who drank excessively. Nicole is originally from Western Australia. She grew up with two brothers and has four younger step or half siblings. Her father was a violent alcoholic, something she has in common with Paula and Joe. Nicole's mother left her father three times before making the final break when Nicole was only six years old. Nicole is now an established writer and has lived with her husband in London for 19 years. Hi everyone. Hello. Um, Right, so today um, I wanted to do something a bit different. Uh, I thought to myself, I am going to start to reflect on how I am feeling or have felt today when I do the podcast. That's what I think I'm going to do. Um, so today, my day started off what I thought was going to be really good. And I noticed that I started to get quite frustrated. And, and I, it was because I was doing something and um, I've just written a children's book and I was trying to look at how I'm going to get it published and things like that. And it's proving to be quite the challenge uh, because it's only 16 pages and you need like a minimum of 24 pages or something. And I was getting quite frustrated with this whole process. Um, And what I've been very aware of is that when I don't feel like I'm achieving something or my time is not very efficient and I'm not getting the outcome that I'd like, um, I find that hugely frustrating and um, so today that was kind of the beginning and then it sort of seemed to tumble into the rest of my day um, sort of and um, and I was just kind of mindful of it and I thought you know what it's really important to reflect and I say to people to do it all the time and it does give us some learning and I just thought it's interesting how I I had this expectation of how that morning was going to go and the things that I was going to do and it didn't actually like pan out that way um but actually i i kind of looked at it afterwards and thought well that is part of the learning process and how we learn but i like to get it right your first time (laughs) and when i don't i find that really frustrating so that was a really good reflection for me so yeah so that that's what i wanted to share today paula up over to you all right then hi everybody it's paula um I like a bit of reflection. Um, I, I was I was noting myself actually the other day. I was getting really um, irritable. I'd been working flat out. I then had to go do a food shop, and I had the boys, and and it got to about four o'clock, and I thought I'm I'm going to lose it in a minute, and then I realised I hadn't eaten. Mm. So um, I have a halt which is hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And so I check on those. And, uh, and the reason was I was tired and I was hungry. Mm. Um, 
And once I'd done that and taken an hour for myself, peace and quiet, I was back to normal again. But it, was, uh, it made me aware of, you know, I took on extra hours and um, actually it didn't benefit me in the end, like spiritually. Mm. But uh, yeah. So what is it? What was it? Halt. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely or tired. Mm. It's like quite it. a good one. Mm, I like it. Um, but no, I'm looking forward to this podcast today. Love a little bit of sibling ring, sibling rivalry. I've <laughs> <laughs> got a bit of that going on, have you, Joanne? <laughs> Don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, so um, so today we've got Nicole with us. Um, Nicole is a woman of many talents, um, and she's also got experience of living um, with a father that drank um and siblings and, and whatnot so we're going to talk about that today you know the difference and how it affects us all differently um how we all cope with that um so nicole do you want to introduce yourself and um yeah give everybody a little bit of information about you and your experiences that would be fab and we're very pleased to have you on yeah uh, thanks. thanks thanks for having me um uh, i'm gonna call it like it is he was a raging alcoholic um, and he also seemed to, just to add a bit more misery, he seemed to have some chemical reaction to beer that just did not make any sense. So he didn't even have to drink a lot of it to be. Mm. And, and he was a dreadful drunk. Um, so, uh, and I grew up, it, it, I've got a, quite a complicated family in terms of sibling relationships, I have to tell you. So I've got biological brothers. I've got a set of twin brothers who are about two and a half years younger than me. And I've got a half sis, a half brother who's the same age as them, so three thirteen-year-old brothers. I just want you to imagine that. <laughs> half sister who's three years younger than them, who's lovely. I beg your pardon. A step brother who's the same age as, and a stepsister who's three years younger. And then I've got a half sister and a half brother who my half sister's eighteen years younger than me, and my half brother's twenty-one years younger than me. Wow. Um, yeah, I remember my dad saying when my youngest brother, when his wife, second wife was pregnant with my youngest brother and he said, um, I'm too old to be a father. And I said, I think you might only just be old enough. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure, he, you know, he wasn't drinking then, which I think is ironic because a lot of his behavior wasn't different. Mm. Um, Dry drunk. <laughs> yeah. It's fascinating actually, because I also felt like when we left, my mother took on some of those, um, some of the, which I understand slightly now took on some of that stuff mm. and and yet she is almost like she's almost paranoid about not drinking ironically she's much easier to get along with if she's had a glass of wine because it does relax her and of course because she doesn't drink it relaxes her quite a lot <laughs> um, but yeah I found that ironic and then someone said to me in, in you know as the years went on that um that somehow that happens, that if someone leaves an abuse cycle and it's not dealt with, then somebody else can tend to take their place. So I'm not sure I understand the science of that at all, but it certainly seemed to be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was my my twin brothers grew up with me. We didn't live with my half-brother and sister or my step-brother and sister. Um, and they are completely different to me. And ironically, I was looking through some of those sibling roles and they're really mixed up. So I'm supposed to be the perfectionist and in terms of work, I really am, but I'm a slob. <laughs> I, <have an> actual <laughs> slob. I love being on for everything. It, I'm immune to it. <laughs> um, both of my brothers are tidier than me. Both of them can actually cook, um, which I just, I'm rubbish at. I don't do anything vaguely house related. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is it is really interesting because they will tell you that they don't remember it. So, so for context, um, my well, for context, my mother met my father in August of 1967. They were married in November 1967. Wow. I was born in June 1968. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, and can I just say, neither of my parents liked me at all, and that that's not me being all difficult it is absolute fact they don't so I've always been that marmite sort of person and while I can be a bit of a people pleaser at work I'm actually used to people not liking me it's, it's mm. kind of cool you know like a, you don't have to worry about it because just join the queue but of course I, it's, it, it's kind of true and and the people that do like me really like me people really who don't like me really don't like me I'm like the marmite 
the personification of Marmite. But what, of course, I realised is they then got married because of me. And while I have broached that with them and they have denied it, 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 it's, it, it is in everything they do. And ironically, I look like both of them. So he, he really struggles because I remind him of her. Mm. She told me that she used to smack me when I said anything because I had his eyes and he was always lying. So if I said anything, she just assumed I was lying. Mm. And you know, I've got a lot of faults. Like I could list them. They could be a book long. Lying is not one of them. <laughs> so, but we left, of course, she'd left him already before, I, before she gave birth. So, you know, when we joke about the fact that my father's never remembered my actual birthday and people say, well, he was there and well, actually he wasn't. Mm. Um, so if she went back to him and she tells me that she went back to him because I needed a biological brother or sister. So I was somehow also responsible for the fact that she went back there. Mm. Um, to be honest, we are talking about the 60s in Australia where there was no sole parent support at all. Mm. Um, and, and it's funny because Australia has seemed quite progressive, but it wasn't. So there would have been almost no choices mm. for her. So there's a but, lot of blame, isn't there? A lot of blame from, from your parents, by the sounds of it, on to you. I do, yeah, do you know, there has been, and there's been real patterns of it, because I had a conversation when my grandfather died, it came out that when I was about five or six, and we used to go to see Dad, because because we loved him, even though he was dreadful, and he remains really dreadful, um, and he would go and get drunk, and I would have to look after my, like, four-year-old brothers, or three-and-a-half-year-old brothers, and this came out when my grandfather died, and she actually said to me, how dare you? Why didn't you tell me that? You were responsible for them. And, and the, the total injustice of being five or six and totally responsible for them just seemed really unfair. But, yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm 52 this year, so I'm a bit blasé about it now. But, yeah, there's no question. Um, I don't think they're conscious of it, but my parents' generation just don't introspect at all. I think they feel like they can't. So I don't think they are aware of, of how it's played out. Mm. So she left again when I was just due to start school. Um, so, so that's five in, in Australia. So they must have been around two, two and a half. And then went back again. And we left the year I turned seven for the last time. Mm. Um, and so the boys will say they don't actually remember it. But I have spoken to a psychologist who said there's no way at a cellular level they don't remember mm. it. Um, I don't think they were as conscious of, of what was happening as I was. But I think that's an oldest thing as well. I don't know that that's true, but I think the oldest tends to be, if there's, if there's not a partner, they're the kind of other responsible person. Mm. So, so, so would you say that you took on the responsibility being the eldest um, and your siblings like were protected by you or looked after more by you yeah I mean I I was I was fiery I mean you know I was really little like front row photos all the time but I I, and we were never allowed to hit anyone first but if they hit us and God help you if you so much as look the wrong way at my brothers because and also too there was no one scarier we came across that wasn't at home so I was scared of no one I mean there's an old story when I was I must we had left by this stage but there were these two boys they must have been about 13 they must have been double my height and one of them pushed my brother into the river and he hit his head on a rock and I went up to him and I grabbed one of them by the jumper and said, you've got to lie, count to three. I don't know what I would have done if he'd still been there at three, but they didn't wait for three. They were <laughs> out of there. And I, and I just, it was that abs, oh, when I was ferocious and I would not touch you if you did not hit me first or if you didn't, but I, I was their great protector. And actually that really complicated our relationship because then I became another mother figure. Mm. And it's only since I've moved over here that we've started to, they still hear me when I say anything as a mother, which is, is really sad actually. I think Paula can probably, I can see her nodding. Yeah, I, I can that. really identify with so much of that. Um, and actually the fact that I am still very protective over um, friends and family, you know, I will, I'll be 
yeah I get quite possessive of my friends and family as well um because it I feel it's my job to protect them and to um to look after them and uh and I suppose that comes from being the oldest um and and protecting um Joanne and um and then when our youngest sister came along protecting her as well and um and I was very much a mother figure to our youngest sister because there again there was a big age gap between us but definitely um you know I've often wondered why I you know like if my best friend has been my best friend since we were 10 and um I love her dearly and of course we've got our own individual friends but Occasionally, I find myself getting a little bit jealous when she talks about someone else because I'm like, she's my friend. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, and I'm very, very, very protective, and that's quite deeply ingrained, definitely. Oh, I can, I can hear it, and I'm so relating to it. And, and it was bad for us, for me. And you, and it was bad for them because then they just had two mums and it's not like the first one was particularly functional. And of course, you know, at six, you're just not that great at it, mm-hmm. you know, and, but they are still to this day, every single thing that's ever happened to them has physically broken my heart. Like they were my, you know, like, and I have yeah. felt like I've got to protect them. And it's funny because even with your job, it sounds like you're the same as me. I honestly, it's only this year that I've gone, I can't do this anymore. I feel like, everything that's going wrong with the country, I have to fix it, like, you know, and, and it's like everything I do is like, but, but you know, people are hungry and, and they're sick and they're on the street and, it, and, and it's just such a weight. I was going to say, equally, does it feel like that? It really does. And it's literally bizarrely during this lockdown that I've had to start thinking, this is just not healthy. I mean, how much of this can you seriously influence? And also for my brothers, so while it all sounds great, we stepped in as this mother figure and we mothered them, which, which wasn't great for us and wasn't probably how it should have been for our childhood. It wasn't great for them either. And, and it really did complicate things because I stopped being their sister, which is more a friend, really. What do you think than- that, um, drove you to start to step into that role? I mean, I understand I things. Mum says at two and a half, she'd go, get the nappies. And I'd be like, I'd, right. I was two and a half. Get twins, right. like, get the nappies. I don't even know what nappies are. Yeah. You know, um, so that responsibility said, was, you know, so she was quite reliant on you at that young, so such a young age. You, that's all you knew was help others, like her dependency on you and, mm-hmm. and growing you up and not allowing you to have a childhood in a sense, like not take on responsibilities that were beyond your age was not something you know that's that was normal to you you know you should have been able to have a you know normal upbringing obviously and be a kid and not have to have those pressures and responsibilities but from a young age it sounds like that was all you really knew yeah you you learn to put other people before you like we've spoken about before you know it doesn't matter about you you've got to sort everybody else out first and Mm. and forget about yourself Mm. um very much so i think but, yeah, um, I mean, so yeah. did your brothers, um, as they're adults now, I mean, you said they don't really remember too much? They say they don't remember too much, but their relationship with, with my father is, is really awkward at the moment. And because they're completely different human beings, they're almost, even though they're twins, one's born on the 22nd of March, one's born on the 23rd. So they're actually technically different days, but it was just before and just after midnight. And in so many ways, even my grandfather, like the whole time he was alive, he could never tell them apart, even though they're not technically identical, but they are so, so Todd's much, he's, what you'd technically say is the medical middle child, he's really gentle, very sensitive, and is the one who will put up with our parents until they leave their mortal coil. He will just keep taking it and taking it. Jason, he is a brat, but his boundaries are amazing. So he said that our father wanted to move to the town he lived in. He said, no, this is where I live. You don't get to live here. And I was amazed. And, and we're, like the last time we went to Australia, we stayed with mum and it was miserable. And I said, why don't you stay with mum? He said, because I don't like it. She's a pain in the ass. Ooh, you're not supposed to say that, are you? I'm sorry. I don't like it. She's a pain. I'm not staying. And I was just, 
I literally was amazed and admired his boundaries. He's almost become my my aim, my hero. Did, of what, did, you, did you kind of envy that that quality in him? Oh God, you have no idea. And to the extent there is no way we're going to do it again. And in fact, I haven't spoken to my father for years now, um, and I I don't have any qualms about that. Um, and I'm I. I I've had to really force myself when I watch him. Can I tell you this story about how my father behaved recently, mm-hmm. which I've got an email from Todd and he, they don't often do emotions. Todd talks a lot. He's very political. He says a lot, but he doesn't always say a lot mm-hmm. yeah, about mm-hmm. his feelings. Mm-hmm. And he sent me this email and it, it literally, and I was so angry on his behalf. So, they both live within like an hour and a half of each other. They've both got a boy and a girl um, there. And in Australian terms, an hour and a half is nothing. Like literally you go four or five hours somewhere. Who's this? Normal. Your brother and... He's got like, two, two brothers. So Your they brothers. Live within okay. Yeah. So my biological father goes down to stay with them, to see them. And he's told him he's coming. He stays down there for two weeks with Jason, the one that could not give a damn whether mm. he lived or breathed stayed there with him and his two kids and his partner and he told Todd he was coming and that that he was going to see the grandkids and whatever. On the day he's leaving, he rings Todd and says, so, you know, I'm going back to Gerald and he said, so I'll drop in and just have a coffee with you, will I? Uh, He's just spent two weeks with the other brother and not so much has picked up the phone. And Todd wrote this email and he said, do you know what? It's one thing him treating me like this, but he does not get to treat my kids like this. Mm. And he just said, don't bother. So, of course, what happened is my little brother then, dad obviously gets off and whinges about it. So my little brother, the very young one, got on the phone and had this raging argument with Todd. And recently my sister raised it and she said that my father had called him a very bad word, my Todd, a really bad word. And I said, well, somebody was a really bad word, but I'll tell you who it was. And I told her and she just went, I can't, this is my half sister. I just don't get why he does that. Like, you know, there's not even vaguely equal treatment here. Two weeks with his twin. And it broke my heart, but I have to stop myself and say to him, you have to decide I agree with you, good on you for standing up with your kids, but you have to decide. Because when I fall out with dad, Todd will step in and he's very loyal. And I had to say to him, I love that about you. I love that about you because I'm exactly the same. But you have to, I hate it because I just want to go over there and kill him. But that I want, I have to let him, he, if he makes a decision about his relationship with his dad, he's got to live with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it can be hard when you, you're, you know, when you're so used to filling a role, um, you know, from such a young age um, and you, you're kind of growing up and you're going through, you know, you do this as a matter of course, you don't even think about it. It's just intuitive and you just do it. Um, and then just because you grow up um, and leave home and you don't live with that person anymore does not mean to say that those behaviors will just turn off. And that is also true of the drinker. Just because they stop drinking does not mean that their behaviors and their personality is going to resume to pre-drinking. It doesn't work like that. Um, and so it's really hard like to, to get out of those because ultimately these are beliefs that you have, you know, all of our issues boil down to our values and beliefs ultimately. And it's like, you believe that it is your job to look after people and to put them first before you and to be the mediator and to sort everything out. That was your role as a child, wrongly or rightly. Um, but now you're an adult you got to think, well, actually, do I want that to be the case now? Do I want to have that role still? Mm. And I, I have really tried to step away from it, actually, with the family stuff. Because so when my sister got married and her, my stepmother died, she was only, she was only six years older than me. So that was never going to be, I was 12 when she was 18 when she met my dad and he was 38. So that was never going to be a winner. But you could not have picked two more opposite people in the world. But anyway, it, much as I... And I will not even pretend I'm not going to play nice. We did not like each other at all. Um, She also, after 31 years, ironically, she was the only person that my father ever treated well. But after 31 years of marriage, she she moved away, slept with her boss, had a raging affair and rang him and went, 
we're over. So I, she was never going to endear herself to me. But of course, my sister got married and her mother's died. And the only you know, parent she's left with is, is our father, who's massively inadequate. So I kind of stepped in and Todd said, oh, she's getting married and I probably should do something. And I said, you know what? You don't have to. I actually think Lorraine's in a really good place. She's met a good person. She's, I had really worried that she was never going to take responsibility for her life. I really did. I, I always saw her as using her background as an excuse. And I really, and I used to say to her, you know, you get to choose, you get to be the author of your own life. You can change this. Mm. But until she felt it, it didn't make any sense. She's met this amazing man who has expectations of her and she's all of a sudden becoming herself and got her confidence back and whatever. She suffers from bipolar. So it is easy to let people look after her. Mm. I get it, but it's not good for your self-esteem. So basically I said to Tom, but you know, you don't have to. I, 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 if I have learned anything in 20 years living on the other side of the world has helped just because we're blood related, I, I really, and all this Judeo-Christian BS about what we, you know, what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to respect our parents. We're supposed to respect our elders. Really? Mm. So, you know, just because we're blood related doesn't mean we have to have a relationship. Mm. Is your father aware of the impact that he's had or is he totally sort of, it doesn't even, you know, cross him, cross his mind? Do you know, not so he's ever acknowledged to us. Not once has he ever said sorry for anything. His childhood was appalling. So we made a lot of excuses for him. When I fell out with him the last time, he told me he was very angry with me. And I then sent him a message which suggested that he needed to get over it because these were the reasons I was angry with him. And, of course, we used to tiptoe around it a bit because it was just easier. And I think that might be the first time he's ever been told, <laughs> yeah, they're not okay. I, he's what? deeply insecure, but he's never, he's never said sorry about anything. He's never acknowledged he did anything wrong. But obviously it's, it had a big impact on the way that you've addressed your adult life. Oh, I mean, all of us. I mean, Todd and Jason have both had really significant issues, you know, terrifyingly difficult issues with addiction and stuff. I mean, they're both through it. They've both got really good families. They, I, they, I personally think they've both got massive self-esteem issues. And I think it's more obvious with Todd because... I don't know why. Maybe because he's like me, I can see it. Whereas Jason do always see the seems... Do they see the connection? Um, well, because they, well, they said we don't remember it. But then he said in his email, I, I, he's done this to my self-esteem. I'm not going to let him treat my kids like this. And I thought, well... That... Yeah, it's there. It's in there somewhere, obviously. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, if... Um, you know, your dad obviously has a problem with alcohol in the past. And, you know, there, there is talk of, you know, about it being hereditary, you know, being a part of your DNA of being an addict of some sort. And it obviously has materialized in your brothers one way or another. Mm -hmm. And yourself, maybe with your perfection, perfectionism at work. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> Recovery. <laughs> She, she's very much she likes um, you know she likes order she likes um, her you know she loves her work and and, it, and everything very precise um, I'm the rule breaker um, but um, and yeah a bit more laid back because I just won't let no one tell me what to do <laughs> but I, I am learning <laughs> but you know um, these things have you know that's what we've discovered ourselves as adults now and you know you can see where those traits have come from but it's um, interesting though isn't it because if you think about like the fact that you were probably more responsible um, as a child in terms of yeah. you know we both had elements of being responsible yeah. and having to do chores and things at a young age and whatnot but let's you know look at you were like very I guess protective and probably felt a little bit responsible to protect me and stuff um, but yet as an adult I'm probably more res I like probably take that responsibility yeah. to a different level than you and you're probably less responsible as an adult and so that's kind yeah. of had a bit of a change as we've grown up yeah yeah I suppose um I've, I've had my fill of responsibility so now I, it's a little bit lack you know 
Yeah, see, I love that because I'm reading this thing and thinking, I think by instinct, I'm the rule breaker. I'm the one that goes, really? Is that really okay? I'm not having it. And, and yet I'm the responsible one. So when I'm looking at your lists about where they are and thinking, that's me, I was the responsible one because that was the position I was in. But I am a, you know, I remember standing outside handing out how to vote cards for politics way before I could vote. And someone said to me, you vote that way because your parents do. I said, don't get ridiculous. They vote that way because I do. Yeah. Like, I was the driver. Yeah, I think you to do the opposite of what I'm told. Um, um, and I had to say it was more attractive if my parents disapproved. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just interested to know how, even though you were um, the sort of protector of your, your brothers and everything and, you know, responsible and everything, how do you think they sort of coped in that situation as children? What, you know, what do you think their coping strategies were? If you were to reflect on that. I mean, there's some really awful stories from back then. And when we're talking about protection, we're talking about physical protection. Mm. It was me that would get the boys out of the way. I mean, you know, in a very practical way when dad lost it, um, and and he, it's a family, it, very interestingly, this runs genetically through the family, that once they start hitting, they have to run out of energy. They actually cannot physically, until they get tired, they don't stop. Now, I have to tell you, when you're five, that's, that's scary as hell. Mm. You are literally just going, please, God, let him run him out of energy. Mm. And also, you know, we saw, so I know they saw that. Mm. What I don't know is how they processed it mm. and maybe they haven't maybe that's why they can't remember i mean it. did they did they avoid it did they hide did they um well, i think they pretty much did what i told them like right. so i would get them out the room but there is a specific memory and this is not something i talk about a lot but i was probably five so they were about three and my father raped my mother on the kitchen floor in front of us now my brothers came out with me and we were biting him on the legs mm. now that tells me that while they wouldn't have had a clue what was going on I'm not sure I did we were all physically trying to protect mum in whatever way we could and the only way we could do it was right him and it's it there were so there was a real and and you know you'll know the dance where you are literally just waiting for all to go wrong and everything's quite normal and he's charming and he was, I mean, he was handsome mm. and charming and he sang and everyone outside the house thought he was mm. wonderful. Um, and then all of a sudden something would happen that you could not predict it and it would blow up. Mm. And that, that, I can't believe that didn't impact them but also That's when i really think about traumatic experience there were a it's lot like that there were a lot like that i mean you know he did awful things he didn't actually i'm sure he didn't want us but when she left the last time he came and picked us up for visitation and then just disappeared for a few weeks with us he didn't want us i, I suspect we probably didn't even eat for much of those, that time but all he wanted to do was annoy her. And at that stage in this country, we were living in our place where it was about 45 degrees in the shade in a tin shearing shed in one room because that was where we had to live. And he just, he, I mean, I, I remember once her going out to get some painkillers because I had an ear, ear infection and my, my, you know, my ear was killing me and I cried. And he hit me so hard that I lifted off the floor and bounced off the wall. Mm. You know, he just was like that. Mm. And I remember when I was with him looking after the boys and I was trying to make everything okay. And, you know, I don't know if you had mm. them over here, those old station wagons with the big window at the back, yeah? And it was going to rain. And so I thought, well, and again, I'm like five or six at this stage. I'll do the window so the car doesn't get wet. I didn't know the window was broken. So the glass then fell into the door mm. He, oh, I thought he was going to kill me that day. He just went mental. And I think and it's interesting that, you know, when you talk about the, um, your brothers maybe like saying that they don't remember anything, just because people say that doesn't mean that, that it's not there and it's not impacting on them because obviously, you know, those sort of traumatic things that you've talking about and, you know, and we cannot underestimate the damage that, that those sort of things does. And even as a child, you don't know what that is necessarily, but you kind of do know it's wrong. Um, mm. You don't really fully understand it. 
does not mean to say that those things do not impact you. And then what happens is like, obviously, if they're not dealt with, then they come back and bite you on the arse many, many years later as an adult. And many people out there and our listeners will be in situations where they don't really make that connection. They don't appreciate that the challenges that they're having as an adult, whether that be in their relationships, whether that be um, at work, whether that be opening up and letting people in and trusting people and, um, you know, feeling safe and all of these things are um, a a knock-on effect to what we've experienced in our past. And many people will not make that connection. And they, you know, often I've spoken to people and they're like, I'm just realizing that I'm the daughter of an alcoholic. And they're like, and I'm thinking, well, how could you not know that? But I kid you not, there is a lot of people that do not recognize that. I mean, it's a term that they don't associate with, but they know that their dad drank too much or their mother drank too much but they don't make that connection that they are then the daughter, the son of an alcoholic or of a drinker. Um, And they certainly don't make the connection that all of the things that have happened to them, like having a sister that's basically mothered them has had any knock on effect. They don't make those connections. Well, to be honest, I, I, I had a very late miscarriage in, in 95 and lost a baby at four and a half months. And I hadn't wanted to have children at all. But when I found out I was pregnant, I kind of assumed that it was meant to be. And then losing it was a huge shock. And I realised at that stage, and I'd had a terrible accident and got paid out for it. So I took myself off to a health retreat. And there was a book. And someone suggested I use it, that I get this book. And it was about being the adult child of an alcoholic. And I went off to ridiculous I was gone by the time I was six or seven Mm. and I thought I'll just highlight the bit so I can show them that it's nothing to do with me I highlighted every bit if you'd said to me before that point that I was an adult child of an alcoholic I would have said no Mm. I was gobsmacked Mm. I couldn't believe how much of it was Mm. me I mean I almost highlighted every line I think since well since I've been in recovery the last three and a half years um i've changed and grown and you know i've become a better person and um and yeah we've got that connection back again that it comes and goes but yeah generally i've always been close i've always looked out for her and uh and because for the for a big the love's wrong even if it's not constructive it's just so strong but you know it is hard to understand that we're not always good at it (laughs) Me, mum and Joanne were pretty tight because dad was always drunk or he would never have anything to do with us. So um, he was there, but he was never present with us. So me, mum and Joanne were very tight for a very, very long time. And then like, I think there's 13 years between me and Katie before like she came along. So we kind of had a life before Katie came along um, and she just unfortunately saw the end of it because um, he died when she was 11 so of alcohol so yeah drunk himself to death he'd already been in um, uh, a mental institution twice through it because he was hallucinating and all that kind of stuff um, but yeah unfortunately she saw the but she never experienced what we experienced with him you know Funny, my mother says that about her younger sister because he wasn't a drunk at all, but he was very, very violent. And of course, her younger sister only saw him, they had left then. And so he wasn't, I think when they weren't all together, living together, he wasn't as aggressive. So she doesn't understand when they say what they say about him. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's hard because that's her reality. She can't pretend that it wasn't. And as soon as we, well, I mean, dad, once we turned 16, that was it. Dad says you have to go fend for yourself. So we were out of the house. and have been fending uh, for yourself, the three of you, our whole life. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so at 16, 17, we were out of the house and Katie was there on her own. But he, he was, um, because they'd lost a baby before then and he'd lost his son from a previous marriage before then, she was his princess, you know, she could do no wrong. So she had a different relationship with him from what we did. And sometimes it's a bit tricky, you know, because... Well, and also that's awful because, like, you know, there's something about your dad. You do actually, like, you know, 
he is my husband was saying because he's had some difficulties with his mum and, and I mean they have been sorted now and there is a massive psychological issue there but he said you don't understand me having to make this decision because you never liked your father and I just looked at him and went oh my god he was the center of my universe I uh adored him and he was so shocked because of course the whole time we've been together he's only seen my adult response to oh my god when he died i remember someone saying to me but you didn't like him anyway yeah no but he was still my dad Mm. do you know what i mean you still are hankering and waiting for that snapshot that moment of you know father daughter kind of thing um just but, that you know. moment. I mean, I had a car accident and, and nearly lost my arm. I mean, you can, you can see it here, but I had a car accident and I was going to see him and I hadn't really hadn't wanted to go. And um, anyway, the, the car, the tyre wound off and locked the axle and the car rolled and it crushed my arm. And I ended up having to be flown in the Royal Flying Doctor down to the hospital. But we got to the local hospital and he's seen the car. And, and what I'm told is he thought that there's no way I could have lived because it was completely battered. And I heard him running down the hospital corridor going, where's my daughter? Uh, where's my daughter where's my daughter and then he gets to the room and he, he just went I love you because he saw I was alive and I said to my later well that was almost worth it <laughs> I spent eight weeks in the hospital with nine operations trying to recreate my arm but it was the only time he ever said it uh, I know it's but it's so complicated because if you didn't genuinely didn't love him or didn't like we don't like them right but if you yeah. genuinely didn't love them it just wouldn't be complicated I know. No. that's the thing if you don't care or whatever right let's start i'm just gonna i'm quickly um ask a question if that or just generally talk about the fact that um I, i'm interested to kind of understand from you because i know that paula and i you know the more we talk about our experiences of living with our dad's drinking the more we come to realize how differently we saw that situation and I know you said your brothers don't really remember anything or whatever I mean obviously maybe you can maybe hazard a guess as to how they saw that situation but for Paula and I you know I I felt actually quite like a weight on my shoulder even though it wasn't specifically always um, you know, th- that pressure wasn't necessarily directly put on me as such, but I, I interpreted it and I, I took that on because I'm overly responsible. I felt that pressure. Um, it was like an assumed kind of thing that sometimes wasn't even asked um, and I would sort of feel that weight, but yet Paula didn't interpret the situation like that. Um, and I think there was m- many sort of examples that we can probably think of that where we saw that environment very differently didn't we Paula yeah because you'd get frightened and I'd get angry Hmm. um you know you'd be afraid where I'd want to punch him in the face and (laughs) yeah um which it makes sense in terms of what something and and you'd want calm yeah, which I think w- really does connect with my anxiety in that, you know, I was feeling very on edge, very like uh, tense. And so it's not surprising then that I developed anxiety because of, you know, what, how I interpreted what was going on around me, which is obviously dependent on our temperaments and, you know, yeah. all sorts of things. And you didn't sort of develop anxiety like in the same way that I did. No, no, not at all. But then you've developed different qualities, different things that I haven't developed. Yeah. Um, I think one of the qualities is... I just love that you've had that conversation. (laughs) (laughs) I think the the qualities are... um, One of the things that you do is uh, picking up on, on, on people and situations and locations that you're in. And I'm... I, I think we're both heightened to, you know, an exit or, you know, scanning rooms and um, sussing. Well, I've sussed people really well. And I think that's a skill that you you have learned as a child because you have to sort of almost do a risk assessment of a situation of when they walk through the door. Mm. Um, so um, 
that is a it is something that I think has benefited but obviously it's not something that you know I want to do but it also comes natural so there's benefits there's obviously benefits and downsides to you know some of these mm. things like you know for you Nicole there's you know good things about being somebody that's responsible and everything but equally there's downsides to being overly responsible and to take on the pressures and and things of other people when it's not your job look absolutely and I, i'm really fascinated in hearing this because i i would love to have this conversation with my brothers and and you know again you know paula and i were just saying you know often with boys it, it probably is harder but i am more comfortable with anger ironically only my husband knows that if the top blows off my head i probably just need a really good cry <laughs> but my comfort zone is anger. You are not going to see me look frightened of you. You are not going to see me at all looking vulnerable. I'm a rubbish judge of character except for charming men. My dad has cured me of charming men. If, I, if, if, if there's a smooth man in the room, then I have instantly written him off. Is that <laughs> anger? Do you think the, and just quickly pick up on that. Do you think that the anger, I don't know if this resonates with you, but would you say that's because you don't want to appear weak? Oh my God, yes. Oh, you never cried first in my house. You lost. That was it. You never. And do you know what my mother said to me? When she, used to, she used to decide how many beltings we need for whatever we were guilty of. Archaic, I have to say. It's making your children, but making them decide how many smacks they deserved with the belt, by the way. And I used to say to her, how did you know if we hadn't done it? And she said, because none of you would cry. You refused to cry if I belted you for something you didn't do. Oh, so then you knew. <laughs> you might be like, what is not right about that? Nicole, I know. You're like a sister from another mister. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I feel like this as well. Exactly. I'm like, I'm just envious because I think I do talk to my sister, but she's my stepsister. We've got different experiences and I adore her. But I almost wish I could have these conversations, these, because of course I was the weak one going to counselling. I was the weak one that talked about their feelings. What, who said, now, is this a perception from other people, you mean? Absolutely. It's because you can't cope. And ironically, it's only in the last 10 years or so I've gone, no, I'm the strong one, actually. Mm. You know, I'm the one that's gone. This isn't okay. But ironically, too, it's been it's really interesting how you find these things out, that there was this book on personalities and health. And so while I, I have always assumed I'm that dominant red in-your-face, don't mess with me. And I went into politics, and you were not a young woman in politics without being old sheep. I am telling you that. Um, but when we did, I made all my friends do this personality quiz with me. And I came out the airy, fairy, arty, farty, humanitarian. And I went, no, I'm the red, dominant, bullshit one. And they went, no, you're not. Mm. And do you know what? Then I realised that I have grown up as this person to fit the role I was yeah. given. yeah. And actually, yeah. so I'm the fighter. I'm the one that will stand up. But, but actually, I don't like conflict. No, I was going to say, it's that, it's that role that you had to fulfill as a child. And obviously, that sort of sticks with you. But actually, if you imagine, you know, that's an outer shell. And underneath that is the real you. The you that would have been had these situations not happened to you. And that yes, is totally. your true, true nature, not the external, which has been a protection, has been a coping strategy, has been all those things but actually underneath all of that is who you truly really are um yeah. and, and that's uh, hard job to find that out actually is. under all the layers yeah, it is you're just a big pussy cat <laughs> well do you know, the thing is i am quite soft but of course and, and unless somebody is it you know as soon as somebody's in a bad situation i, I come out all guns blazing ready to go again and ironically too i'm a raving introvert like i love being at home i'm you know if i go like a whole week without speaking to anyone i'm kind of cool with that mm. whereas of course my mother kept saying you were such a happy child she said and you were always laughing and making people laugh and entertaining them and i'm like you know, that's just exhausting. Yeah. I mean, and, and yet that was the person. But do you know what, too? I was that person that got the school marks, that, that could sing, that could debate, that, you know, did all the school plays and everything. Mm -hmm. And you know what I did by trying to be that person that stopped the arguments? I pushed my brothers in a place. They had nowhere to go. Mm. So 
they couldn't compete with it. I mean, I wasn't winning. All I wanted to do was make everything okay. Mm. And I've noticed that pattern in my life the whole time that when you are in a situation in an organisation or you're working in a situation where it's wrong, you assume it's you and you keep trying harder and you keep trying harder and you keep trying harder and it doesn't change anything. And it took me ages to realise that was because... As a kid, that's what you learn. But what I feel like now is by me being the perfect responsible one that got the great marks, did this, I actually pushed them into a really bad place. So you talked about, um, earlier you talked about um, how, you know, a lot of it sort of centred around anger. What do you think, if you were to reflect or to have, like, think about your brothers, how do you think things come out in them? Like, are they more introvert? Are they, how, how has their experience, do you think, impacted them? Like you're saying yours is more like anger driven. What would I think, you say I think for Todd's them? the same. So he uses anger and it's quite funny when we're together and like he'll raise his voice and he'll get really bolshy and he'll use big words, yeah? Mm. And I'll just go, yeah, I do that too. And I'm really good at that. So it's not working for me. <laughs> do you know what I mean? But that's him. And I suspect too, if you dug underneath his anger, it's probably sadness. Yeah. Whereas Jason is the joker. He is. Right gonna let you know yeah and he's funny like he's really funny Mm. um i mean we todd and i really politically correct and really motivated by you know stuff like that and jason is absolutely politically incorrect and drives us crazy (laughs) i love it he, oh look he is funny though but the problem is you can't stop laughing at him mm. he really is very funny but he he will joke it off so when you see these little moments like when they, you know I was talking to Paula earlier about his oldest daughter saying to me oh he blames his father for everything and I and of course he's never said that to me and I went well hold on a sec she's nearly 25 I went he's right it was bad and it was really bad, but I've never heard him say that. He's never mm. said that to me. So I there guess, must be a definite impact there, for yeah. sure. Oh, without a oh. doubt. And I think it's interesting to see that, you know, how it's obviously affected you all obviously very differently. We know that that happens. And, you know, these are different sort of coping strategies, aren't they? You know, Paula's coping strategy was, you know, to more sort of defy and you know won't be told you know what to do and my coping strategy was you know to to be compliant because I felt that that was a way of keeping myself safe you know some children you know do like make jokes of things or make light of something as a way of coping because that pressure and that whole the the trauma of it all is just too much to bear or even become bullies yeah yeah Yeah, and i think there's many many ways isn't there that we can all kind of develop from our childhood and what's happened to us whether we're consciously aware of it or not is another matter doesn't mean to say Mm -hmm. that it hasn't affected us because the impact is still there it's just whether you're consciously aware of that impact or not and how it's then you know you know affecting your life on a daily basis sometimes Mm -hmm. yeah well, do you know, I've been really glad during lockdown that I, I had PTSD counselling. When they told me I had PTSD, I was like, yeah, for God's sake, really, you know, another abbreviation. I went back because sometimes I don't sound like I'm listening really, but I went away and I read it and I went, oh, dear God. Yeah. Yeah. And so my thing is I have to fix it. Yeah. So I go to counselling and they identify me with trauma, which really, really diagnosed me with trauma. And I'm like, it really upset me. I'm like, I'm not a refugee. I haven't lived through a war. Um, and we did 18 months. And I can only say that going through lockdown, which seems to bring every little chip in your mental health, yeah. I do not know how I'd have got through this if I hadn't done that 18 months of hell. It's interesting you know, it how was... we can minimise it, isn't it? You know, what you've just said there, in a sense, is minimizing your experience and comparing it to you know somebody else but ultimately whatever your experience is and however it's impacted you is is real and is no less important than anybody else's experience no matter what it is you know Mm. and I think it's so easy to and again it's a coping strategy it's a defense mechanism you know we want to appear strong you know I haven't been affected by these things and that's not me Mm. um, because we don't 
as we've just said, we don't want to appear, you don't want to appear weak. You don't want to people to think that maybe you're a target or that you're susceptible or vulnerable. And so you want to appear strong and in control and, you know, no one's going to take advantage of you. Um, and you know, though, interestingly enough, the conversation that you and I had, that initial conversation, I realized yet again, every time we talk about this, we give other people permission, one to go, oh yeah, that's how it felt for me. Yeah. Or gosh, that felt really similar. And, you know, I remember this during the Me Too thing because I came right out of my comfort zone and talked about what had happened at work. I didn't know that my first boss who didn't know what had happened was on LinkedIn when I did it. And it was mortified um and i i found myself isn't this bizarre going to him it's okay they're really clever these people <laughs> do you know what i mean but it, so you're almost making it up to, to you know the people that were in a position to change it but we just give people permission and also yeah. we, there's moments where we feel crazy and actually we're not there's a whole lot of us out there that are i don't know I, I think it's. I think that these these conversations are are so so important, and you know we have people join our Daughters of Alcoholics group on Facebook that, um, again, that haven't identified or that have recently just identified as being the daughter of an alcoholic, and you know just hearing these sorts of conversations, you know, I think is the best way of people identifying because when we can, when we hear someone tell a story and we're like. Oh, that sounds a bit familiar and you know even now if I was to hear something and someone said about PTSD or someone said about complex PTSD or I'm like oh, I think I've probably had that and you know and until you start hearing people talk about it and talking about the symptoms and the you know I mean you don't that it's the easiest way for people to relate and for people to make start to making those connections and hopefully open down up their mind to the fact they might have been affected it might take a long time but if we don't start having these conversations that's never going to happen and i think that and you're not going to make changes are you so no. you know it's about taking back the power and control yeah it, it is and also you just feel like you know I, I wonder whether we're all going to be 96 and still dealing with some of this you know even a couple of weeks ago in the middle of lockdown and, and as I said to you I feel like I can protect the whole world and I literally the top blew off my head when I read that the PPE, PPE was running out and I I just felt so distressed about it and funnily enough, I'm in this group and I don't normally go in there, right? But I went in there and said, look, I'm not looking for any advice or anything, but this has just happened. This woman came back and said, do you know, is there any chance that because when you were a kid and your safety and protection was in the hands of authority figures who didn't keep you safe, mm. that's being triggered now mm. because the authority figures, oh, the clarity. Mm. I went, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Ninety-six, having these clarity moments, but there are things like the counselling we can do that whatever works that can move forward a bit. Yeah, definitely. Look, we're coming to the end. We've, you know, we've had such a good chat, and uh, it, it's it's been, you know, I love it. I love, you know, I love all this sort of stuff. And well, good on you guys for doing this. And do you know what? You you're an absolute inspiration to me. May I ever be able to have a conversation with my brothers, who I adore, who are the people apart from my husband I love most in the world. Um, and that counts everyone. Mm. Um, good on you guys for doing this. I think it's really, really oh. good. I, you're, you're inspirational doing this. And Thank just you. the fact that your relationship is so solid after all the challenges it's had, it's just... I mean, that makes me very hopeful. Oh, thank you. It's been fantastic thank having you on. It really has. And thank you so much for sharing your story and, you know, being so honest and, and you know, sharing things that are very, you know, delicate and sensitive. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks really very much, um, Nicole. Um, my sister from another mister. Honestly. <laughs> and I was just going to say, you with me now. You do get that. <laughs> no it's been great and um there's so many things and i've just gone oh like this do you know what i mean and uh got a bit excited about but no thank you very very much for joining us it's been lovely oh thank you i, I really appreciate it and i'm so pleased to have met you too you know and good on you for doing this honestly and i would can i just say this one thing that someone said this the other day and i thought it was really important we have survived a hundred percent of the thing that's things that have gone wrong 
people in our life so far. And, yeah. and I thought oh, that just, it's right, isn't it? We have. Yeah. yeah, we're survivors. You know, anybody that goes through this is a survivor. And, you know, we're often very much stronger than we realise. Um, I'd like to think I'm a warrior. I like it. Warrior. I like it. Yeah, no, I think you've got warrior written all over you, girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh brilliant all right then ladies till next till next time till next time see you later Bye. bye